As the class of 2012 begins their unique and personal journey at Colorado College, they will be exposed to the core values of CC, one of which is nurturing a sense of place. To create and expand a sense of place, it is necessary to become informed about the events, people, and history of a community. And that would not be possible without one of the most important institutions in our society, which is journalism. Journalists objectively inform their communities about what's going on. They relate the truth to the people, and without them, our intellectual journey towards understanding our place in the world would be impossible. Which is why we are privileged to have with us today to welcome the parents and students of the class of 2012, a pinnacle of the journalistic institution. This is only the third time in all of Colorado College history that the capstone speaker at the official college welcome has also been the author of the new student orientation book that all incoming freshmen and transfer students read, which is why we are especially lucky that he will be taking questions after he's done speaking from that microphone right there, and he will also be signing copies of his book once the speech is all done way back in the atrium. There's a little table on the left side, so you're all welcome to go get your copies of the book and come get a word with Mr. Jeffrey Tubin. Um, and in the book, the nine that he's written, Mr. Tubin spreads the fundamental truths about another critical institution in American society, the Supreme Court. As he humanizes the justices in the nine, Jeff upholds the most important role of the journalistic institution. He brings the truth to the people. And in doing so, he allows the class of 2012 to start off their personal and unique intellectual adventures by exploring the forces that shape this place that we call America. Jeff is an Emmy Award-winning senior analyst for CNN, and he also writes for The New Yorker. He has informed America about such major events as the O.J. Simpson and Martha Stewart trials, President Clinton's impeachment hearings, and he's even found time to publish five books along the way. His objectivity and unique skill in translating important legal truths into a language that every American can understand is a true asset to our society at large. As a journalist and an American, and as a CC student on my own unique intellectual adventure, I am honored and privileged to welcome Mr. Jeffrey Tubin to Colorado College. Thank you, and thank you, Joel. That was really a very generous and wonderful introduction. Thank you, and thank you, uh, Dean Ashley. And welcome, everybody. You're in college. Gosh, that's great. College is great, you know? My daughter's a high school senior starting next week, and I can't quite absorb that, but I'm bracing myself for next year. Um, you're not only in college, but you're in the absolute center of the universe. You've got the Olympic training facility just out, just out of town. You've got the Democratic Convention. Who knew, right? When you were applying last year, uh, it's really no, it really must be. It's it's exciting to be here. I I, I flew in today on a uh, on on a, just a regular United flight from New York, and it was like a charter flight of every journalist and politician that I've ever met. Uh, it, it was great, and uh, and I'm you know heading back to Denver tonight for uh, the start of the festivities. And I hope I don't, I don't want to get you in trouble leaving campus or whatever. I don't know what the rules are, but I hope you get a chance to see uh, see some of the action. Uh, it, it should be fun and you know a little goofy the way conventions are supposed to be. And 
I, I, uh, it, it's, it's great to be here. The, uh, I learned, of course, when I was preparing this, that uh, you were all assigned to read my book, which is a little unnerving. I, I sort of apologize for being homework, your first college homework. Uh, but uh, in the best CC tradition, I like to think of it as the Tubin block of your career. And uh, I, hope, I hope it's not, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't too painful. And, and that's what I'd like to talk a little bit about today, uh, which is the intersection of law, specifically the Supreme Court, and politics. Because you know, one of the curiosities about political campaigns is that we tend to fixate on a few issues and sometimes those issues turn out to be very important in the presidency of whoever wins, and sometimes they're not. Uh, th that that the, the, the sort of strange alchemy of what grabs people's attentions during the fall of, of these years is, is never, we never know for sure, and sometimes important things get neglected, and I expect that you will hear relatively little, not nothing, but relatively little about the Supreme Court, uh, over the course of these next two months, but I think it's really important. And uh, I hope to the extent that you are engaged citizens, which I hope you are, you ask a lot of questions about the Supreme Court, uh, because I think it has a tremendous impact on the future uh, of our country. The Supreme Court is a peculiar institution for a journalist to write about, because it is at once very familiar to people, very well known, but the people on it are largely anonymous. and. The justices themselves know this and sometimes have a little fun with the, their peculiar status in, uh, in America. Is that an organ? Did I hear? No, I'm sorry, it was just a cell phone. It's not a real gathering of Americans unless someone's cell phone goes off. So I really, I'm glad we have christened this event. Uh, with, uh, but uh, the, um, the, the justices sometimes sort of recognize their simultaneous public and private status. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. For reasons that remain obscure, David Studer, Suter and Stephen Breyer are frequently mistaken for each other. Now, I don't know if you know what they look like. They don't really look anything like each other, but it always happens. One time, not too long ago, Justice Souter, as he often does, was driving from Washington to his home in New Hampshire, and he stopped to get something to eat in a little restaurant in Massachusetts. And he, he's sitting there, and a couple comes up to him, and the guy says, I know you. You're on the Supreme Court, right? Yes, yes. You're Stephen Breyer, right? And Souter didn't want to embarrass the fellow in front of his wife, so he said, yes, yes, I'm Stephen Breyer. And they chatted for a little while, but then he asked a question that, 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 he, that he wasn't prepared for. He said, so, Justice Breyer, what's the best thing about being on the Supreme Court? He thought for a minute and he said, I have to say it's the privilege of serving with David Souter. <laughs> now, how can you not love an institution where that's still possible? Um, the, the other reason I write the book, other than to, ca you know, to capture the wit and wisdom of David Souter, was to talk about this moment in the Supreme Court's history, because I think it's a very important moment. And to see why it's an important moment, I think you need to go back to the late 60s, the late 1960s. And during that time, it's hard to remember in the America we live in now, but there were seven liberals on the United States Supreme Court in the late 60s. Earl Warren was, was near the end of his days as Chief Justice, and you had seven liberals who were really trying to change the country. There was a liberal agenda on the Supreme Court, and that agenda had different parts. You had a case like New York Times against Sullivan, 
which started protecting freedom of the press in a way it had never been protected before. You had the Miranda decision, which changed the way criminal suspects were, were arrested and, the new, and rights that they had. Um, you had the famous Griswold decision, which said there, Americans had a right to privacy. The specific nature of that decision was about uh, married couples had the right to buy birth control. The state couldn't ban, uh, Connecticut couldn't ban individuals, married people from buying birth control, and it was because that was a, an area of privacy that the state couldn't enter into. And then in uh, a series of decisions, usually unanimous, the court basically decided to drag the South, kicking and screaming, into the 20th century and issued civil rights decision after civil rights decision that said segregation, discrimination, was no longer legal by states in, in the United States. And that really was the liberal agenda of the late 60s. But then, in the very curious way that the Supreme Court evolves, four justices left in very quick succession. Richard Nixon just became president in 1969, and four justices left. Earl Warren, Hugo Black, John Harlan, and uh, Abe Fortas all left. And Richard Nixon got to name four justices. You know, a conservative president got to name four justices. It's a curious nature of American history, the, the quirks of fate. Jimmy Carter is the only president in American history who served a full term in office and didn't get to name a single justice to the Supreme Court, just didn't happen to be any vacancies while he was president. Richard Nixon was only president for five and a half years. You'll recall he had to leave early. Uh, there was, it was a whole thing. It was before most of you were born, but I think you know about it. Uh, he only served for five and a half years, but he got four justices uh, that he named to the court. And uh, a lot of people thought at the time that the court would dramatically swing to the right, become much more conservative. But let's think about who he named. Who did he name to the court? He named Warren Burger, Chief Justice, uh, Lewis Powell, Harry Blackman, and William Rehnquist. And what I think the Nixon appointments illustrate is a theme that I talk about somewhat in the nine, but also a theme that I talk about in the rest of my life because I think it's a very important theme of American political life over the past 40 years, which is the change in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is a very different institution from the one it was in 1969, and what you see about the Republican Party is that it has moved to the right dramatically. Richard Nixon's party is very different from George W. Bush's party. It's different from Ronald Reagan's party. It's different from George Herbert Walker Bush's party. And I think Richard Nixon's Supreme Court appointments illustrate that in fact the Republican Party of the 60s and early 70s was a pretty moderate centrist operation. And Nixon's appointments illustrate that. And the Supreme Court in the 70s illustrates that. Because in fact the Supreme Court did not move dramatically to the right in the 70s. You had the court actually remaining fairly liberal on a lot of subjects. You had the Nixon tapes case where they essentially forced Nixon out of office in 1974. You had them approve school busing. And still, the most famous or infamous decision of them all, Roe versus Wade, 1973, the court that said states could, the, the decision that said the states could not ban abortion was a seven to two opinion with three of the four Nixon justices voting in the majority. Blackman, 
uh, Berger and Powell were all in the majority. Uh, only Rehnquist dissented with Byron White, who was appointed by John F. Kennedy, and I think that illustrates where the Republican Party was in the mid-70s. But the Republican Party started to change, and the big change really began in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan, because Ronald Reagan came to Washington with a group of people who said, you know what, there's been a liberal agenda at the Supreme Court. What we need is a conservative agenda for the Supreme Court. We're not going to just object to a case here and there. We're going to have our own agenda for the Supreme Court. Uh, and what was that agenda? Expand executive power end racial preferences intended to assist African Americans, speed up ex executions, welcome religion into the public sphere, and above all, reverse Roe versus Wade and allow states once again to ban abortion. You had the creation of the Federalist Society, which is an organization of conservative lawyers. A lot of Democrats these days talk about the Federalist Society as if it's something out of the Da Vinci Code, that it's some scary secret organization. Not true, it's just an organization of conservative lawyers who say, look, we want to change the law and what the Constitution means. And a big part of what the Republicans did in the 80s was they brought with them bright, energetic, very conservative young lawyers with them to Washington. And who were two of the best and the brightest of that group? John Roberts and Samuel Alito. And I think to understand who they are and where they are taking the court, you have to understand that that's where uh, they come from. They came from that great moment in conservative history. And Samuel Alito, you know, this is no secret. You know, when he was in the Justice Department, he wrote in a memo in 1985, what can be made to, of this opportunity to advance the goal of bringing about the eventual overruling of Roe versus Wade? Later that year, prying for a promotion in the Justice Department, he wrote, I am particularly proud of my contributions to recent cases in which the government has argued in the Supreme Court that the Constitution does not protect the right to an abortion. This is what Samuel Alito believes. This is why he got involved in government, because he wants to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, this is what they did. But the Republican Party was not completely dominated by what we might call the base or the new right or the religious right. Ronald Reagan was a very crafty politician and he made a promise when he was running that Jimmy Tidd Carter didn't even make in 1980. He said, if there's a vacancy, I will appoint a woman to the Supreme Court. First one ever. And in 1981, when Potter Stewart unexpectedly announced his resignation, he said to his people, look, I promise to appoint a woman. He didn't say, I promise to appoint someone who will overturn Roe versus Wade. He said, find me a qualified woman. And that's where Sandra Day O'Connor came from. And that's where Sandra Day O'Connor's amazing career at the Supreme Court began. She was hardly an obvious candidate for the court. She wasn't even on the highest court in Arizona. She was on the Intermediate Appeals Court. But Reagan uh, said, this is what I want. And she was, from the beginning, known as a centrist and a moderate. In 1986, Warren Burger resigned. Uh, Reagan elevated William Rehnquist to be Chief Justice, named Antonin Scalia to be, uh, to be the uh, next Associate Justice. The following year, very important event in the history of the Supreme Court. 1987, very important moment. Lewis Powell resigned. Lewis Powell was somewhat overused term perhaps, but he was the swing vote. He was right in the middle of the court. So it was very important who replaced him. And Ronald Reagan named Robert Bork to that seat. 
And the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, a guy named Joe Biden, much in the news today, uh, Joe Biden said, you know what? Too conservative. The, Senate, the Democrats had just retaken the Senate in the 1986 election. I was about to say the 1986 Olympics. There were no Olympics in 1986. 1986 election. And Biden led the fight to stop Robert Bork. And you know what? The nation had a national conversation about what the Constitution meant. And Robert Bork said, you know what? There's no right to privacy in the Constitution. And the Civil Rights Act, that was a monstrous thing. And the, country, and the Senate, which were really reflecting the views of the country, said, too conservative. And he lost in the Senate, 58 to 42. And, and, and Howard Baker, who was the White House Chief of Staff at the time, he said to President Reagan, look, we can't get someone that, that conservative through the Senate anymore. It just can't happen. So they named Anthony Kennedy. And Anthony Kennedy has been often conservative, but often moderate as well. And I think it is significant that he took the seat that, went, that would have gone to Bork because Reagan recognized that the country hadn't moved that far to the right yet. And that's where the court stayed for, about, uh, for, for quite some time. And that period, when, Reagan was, when, when Rehnquist was Chief Justice, is really what my book is about. I won't belabor it. You've, you've read it, I hope. And, um, but you know, a couple of things about the Rehnquist court that were a little unusual. Um, one of the th my inspirations in writing uh, The Nine was a book called The Brethren, uh, which was written by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong. Great book, published in 1979, long time ago, uh, and it was uh, really the theme of the book was how much the justices couldn't stand Warren Burger. And it was really about all the juicy personal fights. And, you know, the history of the court was very much about the justices not getting along with each other. I don't know how many of you have had the misfortune to have heard of a justice named James McReynolds, who served on the court from 1914 to 1941, who was such an appalling anti-Semite that he used to get up and leave the conference room whenever Cardoza or Brandeis would speak. Um, William Douglas, very cranky liberal, served on the court for a long, long time. In, uh, he used to spend his summers in rural Washington state. One summer, he had a car accident. He drove his car off a cliff. And the first question everybody asked back at the Supreme Court was, where was Felix Frankfurter at the time? Because they hated each other so much. He thought he rode him off the road. <laughs> but much to my disappointment as a journalist, that was not the story of the Rehnquist Court. The Rehnquist Court, as you know from the book, they got along pretty well. Rehnquist learned from Berger's negative example, and he basically let the other justices alone, treated them fairly, and he did another thing that they all liked a lot. And you will learn, as college students, learn to like this a lot. Here's a rule. People like less work rather than more work, <laughs> whether you're college freshmen or Supreme Court justices. In the 1980s, the Supreme Court was deciding 150 cases a year. Under Rehnquist, that number was cut in half to about 70. Do the math. 70 cases divided by nine justices, each with four law clerks apiece. It's a pretty cushy job being a Supreme Court justice. It's not as hard work as it once was. Now, in the 80s, when there were so many cases, there was actually a proposal to add sort of a super appeals court right below the Supreme Court. 
and it went to uh, the White House for an evaluation, and it went, as these things do, to the White House Counsel's Office, and a young lawyer in the White House Counsel's Office had to evaluate this proposal. And this is what that young lawyer wrote. The young lawyer, John Roberts. John Roberts wrote this. While some of the tales of woe emanating from the court are enough to bring tears to the eyes, it is true that only Supreme Court justices and school children are expected to and do take the entire summer off. <laughs> now, I haven't heard Chief Justice Roberts talking that way much lately. In fact, it turns out they like those summers off. And uh, that's one way they got along with each other. Now, um, the court remains... Uh, a place where they get along pretty well under, under John Roberts as well. And you really only need to look at them in action. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to watch a Supreme Court argument. I certainly encourage you all to go. It's very interesting, often very entertaining. And there's one very well-known fact about the Supreme Court oral arguments. Eight justices are really engaged and really prepared and ask a lot of really hard questions and Clarence Thomas never says anything. And even by Thomas's standard, last year was extraordinary. Last year, there were 104 oral arguments at the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas did not ask one question in one case an enterprising reporter from the McClatchy newspapers decided to add up all the words spoken by every justice in the course of the entire year. And Stephen Breyer was first with more than 35,000 words, and Thomas was last with zero. Uh, <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing. But, but if you go to see the justices in action, you will see that Thomas is not isolated. He, sits, he sat for many years between Breyer and Kennedy. They sit in seniority order. And he passes notes to Breyer, tell jokes. They, get a, you know, they really do get along with each other. Thomas, for whatever bizarre reasons, just decides not to talk in oral argument. And in the Rehnquist years, I think it is useful to think of the court in two parts. 1986 to 2000 and 2000 to 2005. And the dividing line in the history of the court, and the dividing line in many respects in our history, is Bush v. Gore, the court's decision in Bush v. Gore. Now, if you've read the book, you know I am somewhat obsessed of the subject of Bush v. Gore. There are three chapters in the book about it. I'm not going to repeat uh, everything I have to say about Bush v. Gore. I'll just tell you one little story. My last book before I wrote uh, um, uh, the Nine was called Too Close to Call. It was about the recount in Florida. And one of the things I really tried hard to do was to interview Al Gore. Obviously, you know, you'd want to get his perspective. And I tried everything. I begged, I asked friends, I interceded. I just, I, he wouldn't talk to me. He just didn't want to relive the subject. I, I had to write the book without, without talking to him. Just by coincidence, while I was working on The Nine, I met Al Gore. And he had read Too Close to Call, and we were chatting. And I said, you know, Mr. Vice President, you're never going to believe this, but I'm writing another book where Bush v. Gore is at the center of it. He's, I said, I think I'm the biggest Bush v. Gore junkie in the world. And he said to me, you may be second. Uh, which, you know, I think I got to give him a nod on that, because, you know, his stake in the outcome was a little different than mine. But... The interesting thing about Bush v. Gore, the implications of Bush v. Gore on the Supreme Court 
was profound and not even in the way I expected. Because from 1986 to 2000, you had a pretty conservative court, but in 2000 to 2005, you had an actually fairly liberal court. That was the time that they struck down the death penalty for the mentally retarded, ended the death penalty for juvenile offenders, decided Lawrence v. Texas, which said that you couldn't criminalize gay sodomy uh, between consenting adults, overruling an earlier case. They saved affirmative action in the University of Michigan Law School case, and in case after case, they rejected the Bush administration position on the treatment of the detainees in Guantanamo. Why? Why? because Sandra Day O'Connor changed. Because Sandra Day O'Connor thought she was getting one kind of conservative when she voted with the majority in Bush v. Gore, and it turned out she was not getting that kind of conservative. She thought she was getting her kind of conservative, a Western conservative, a libertarian conservative, a Goldwater conservative, a conservative like George Herbert Walker Bush, perhaps. But as I think we all know, George W. Bush turned out to be a very different kind of president, a movement conservative, a, a hardcore conservative, and that was not O'Connor's kind of conservative. And she was offended by what she saw coming from this administration, and she started voting against them all the time. She didn't like John Ashcroft. That wasn't her kind of conservative. She didn't like the way the war in terror was being conducted. She didn't like the way the war in Iraq was being conducted. And above all, O'Connor was affected by an event that I think as we look back on the first decade of this millennium will loom large. And that's the Terry Schiavo case. Doesn't get talked about a lot now, but was a big event in our history, especially for the judiciary, because on the one hand, you had um, you know, Congress and the President trying to inject itself into the judiciary's business, trying to tamper with the independence of justices, but you also had a government trying to get involved in the medical decision-making for a very sick person taking the place of the family. And this had a special resonance for Sandra O'Connor because at this precise moment, this was when her husband, John O'Connor, was slipping into the grip of Alzheimer's disease, 2003. 2004, she starts bringing um, John O'Connor with her to court every day just so she can keep an eye on him. But then he starts wandering away during the day. This is something Alzheimer's patients sometimes do. Tragic situation. And finally, in June of 2005, much to everyone's surprise, she goes to her old friend, her law school classmate, William Rehnquist, and says, look, I have to leave. I have to resign to take care of John. Interesting parenthetical question to ask yourself. How many male Supreme Court justices would have made that calculation? I don't know. Not many. But that was what her calculation was. And she, um, and she left the court. And here's where the chronology becomes important and rather poignant. She resigns, she announces her resignation in June of 2005. President Bush names John Roberts to replace her. All through the summer, uh, the confirmation hearings are prepared. Labor Day weekend, William Rehnquist dies. Uh, Bush immediately names Roberts to replace Rehnquist, and O'Connor has to wait. Roberts has his hearings, he's confirmed, 
President Bush names Harriet Myers to replace O'Connor. That tragicomedy takes about a month to resolve itself. And then, finally, Samuel Alito is named, and hearings are held, and he's confirmed. All in all, it's almost a year before O'Connor can actually leave the Supreme Court. And during that year, John O'Connor slips completely into the grip of Alzheimer's disease, and by the time she actually leaves the court, her husband doesn't even recognize her anymore. So simultaneously, Sandra O'Connor leaves, leaves her beloved seat on the court and loses her beloved husband. And the court has two new people, and the court is a transformed institution. This is a much more conservative court. Stephen Breyer, last June. Stephen Breyer is a generally very optimistic, positive person and fairly liberal. And what he said about his new colleagues was this, in court, it is not often in law that so few have quickly undone so much. This is what the new Supreme Court is like. But there are four pretty liberal justices on the court, Stevens, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Souter, four very conservative justices, uh, 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 Thomas, Scalia, uh, Roberts, and Alito, and Justice Kennedy in the middle, usually but not always siding with the conservatives. But what about the future? Three of the four liberals are likely to leave. Three of, Justice Stevens is 88 years old. Now, I hasten to add that Justice Stevens' older brother, William Stevens, is 91 years old and still practicing law in Florida, but still, I mean, 88 is 88. Uh, Justice Ginsburg is 75, Justice Souter is 69, and really wants to go home to New Hampshire. Those three are likely to leave. What is at stake in this election are those seats on the Supreme Court. That's something you should keep in mind as you're deciding who to vote for. And I'd like to conclude by talking a little bit about John McCain and the Supreme Court. Because John McCain has uh, gave a speech about the Supreme Court that I didn't get a lot of attention, but I think deserves a lot of attention. Because uh, it illustrated, I think, a problem that McCain has in this election. Because McCain has, as we all know, a very appealing personal story. And his character and his personality and his story is really very admirable across the political spectrum. But he is running at a moment when his positions on issues are, it appears, a little out of step with where most Americans are. And this is true with the Supreme Court as well. And I think what's significant about McCain's speech, and I'm going to read you two excerpts, is that he felt it necessary to speak in code to the people in the movement who understood what he was saying, but for regular Americans who don't follow this stuff very closely, it's all a little obscure. What day did John McCain give this speech? May 6th. Why is that date significant? Well, you probably don't remember it now, but it was the day of the Indiana and North Carolina Democratic primaries. It was the day that Barack Obama essentially clinched the nomination. It was a day that people weren't paying much attention to John McCain. And that's why he gave the speech on that day. Because he didn't want the speech to get up a lot of attention. He wanted to speak to the movement who would pay attention, to the, to the, the base of the Republican Party, but he didn't want to get a lot of broad attention. 
And uh, let me read you two excerpts and do a little what we might call simultaneous translation. This is what McCain said. For decades now, some federal judges have taken it upon themselves to pronounce and rule on matters that were never intended to be heard in courts or decided by judges, with a presumption that would have amazed the framers of the Constitution and legal reasoning that would have mystified them Federal judges today issue rulings and opinions on policy questions that should be decided democratically. Assured of lifetime tenure, the, these judges show little regard for the authority of the President, the Congress, and the states. They display even less interest in the will of the people. And the only remedy available to any of us is to find, nominate, and confirm better judges. Well, what's he talking about here? Sort of vague, isn't it? Rulings and opinions on policy questions that should be decided democratically. He's talking about Roe v. Wade. He's talking about letting states ban abortion again. McCain, in the past, has been very open about his view that Roe v. Wade should be overturned, and he still says it if pressed. But his problem is that most Americans don't want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. So he speaks in this kind of code about policy questions that should be decided democratically, but rest assured, this is what he means. Now, this second excerpt is even more elliptical. Sometimes the express will of the voters is disregarded by federal judges, as in a 2005 case concerning an aggravated murder in the state of Missouri. As you might recall, the case inspired a Supreme Court opinion that left posterity with a lengthy discourse on international law, the constitution of other nations, the meaning of life, and evolving standards of decency. These meditations were in the tradition of penumbras, emanations, and other airy constructs the court has employed over the years as poor substitutes for clear and rigorous constitutional reasoning. The effect of the ruling in the Missouri case was familiar too. When it finally came to the point, the, the result was to reduce the penalty, disregard our Constitution, and brush off the standards of the people themselves and their elected representatives. Now, what's peculiar about this passage? He never says what the case is about. He says this is a Missouri case, and it's a... Well, what was this case about? I'll tell you what the case was about. The case was about a 17-year-old boy who was killed his neighbor in outside St. Louis, and he was sentenced to be executed. And the question before the Supreme Court was, is the United States going to allow the execution of children? And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to allow the execution of children in the United States. And Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion in the case called Roper v. Simmons, and he talked about the stark reality that the United States is the only country in the world that continues to give official sanction to the juvenile death penalty. And he noted that the only countries to execute juvenile offenders since 1990 were Iran, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Nigeria, Congo, China, and the United States of America. And he said, and the Supreme Court said, no more. And you know what? Most people agree with that. Most people think we shouldn't execute children. But when you talk in this vague way about the, the, some case in Missouri, people don't realize that's what you're talking about. And that's what this election is about, in part. And with that, 
I hope you have some questions. Thank you. Thank you. Now, um, thank you very much. Who's the... Uh,